and welcome along to the Property Academy Podcast. I'm your host, Ed McKnight. And I'm Andrew Nicholl. And today on the show, we're talking about saving for your investment property deposit. Now, this is actually one from me because I'm currently saving for the next investment deposit because I'm tapped out of equity. Or rather, I should say that I'm soon to be tapped out of equity because I've already planned the next two that I'm going to buy and then I will be tapped out and need another deposit. And the thing that I've been thinking about is, well, what should I be doing or what should I do with that money while I'm saving it? Should I just leave it in my bank account or should I invest it in something else? So I've gone away and run some numbers and I'll talk through these along with Andrew and hear, well, what would you do in that situation? But I just want to go through a couple of things. Am I actually going to buy an investment property with a 100% cash deposit? You know, Am I going to save up 120 k to buy a 600 k property and then that property's actually gone up in value while I've been saving that? Look, probably not. It's going to be some mix of capital growth and paying down mortgage because one of them's on P&I as well as savings. So the combination of these three things is probably going to build up to the next deposit. But I've been thinking, well, if that money's going to be sitting there, what should I do with it? Andrew, when you've been doing this in the past, what do you typically consider when you're thinking about what to do with that cash in the meantime? Well, to be fair, I usually use equity to reinvest. Well, certainly in my years of building up my portfolio, I would use equity increases because I just kind of didn't really have enough disposable extra money to be able to save up a deposit quick enough to be able to buy a property at the stage I wanted to. So the first one's always the hardest one because you've got to save up that deposit if you don't own your own house and I didn't. So you diligently squirrel away your money and you get to a point where you can buy your first rental property, you add some value or you wait for the market to go up and then you repeat the process. Once you've got two, then you've got two properties going up in value and then when you go buy another one or another two, then you might have four going up in value and it kind of, you have that family tree where you're always going to be able to have a faster speed in which you can acquire your next property at. And I suppose it was much easier when you first started because I think I remember it was about a 10k deposit that you had between you and was it Nicola or Sophie or <laughs> it, was there a, it was Alice <laughs> there are many names that you often pull out on the podcast um, and also back then at the BNZ you could do 95% for your first property then you could do 19, 90, 90 and then it dropped to 80 Oh, those were good days. Oh, you would have thought that dropping to 80 was the hard part. Oh, now, you're terrible. Look, now you're looking at 60 and you're feeling very bad or sorry for yourself. Now, some of the things that I'm certainly considering is a mix of growth and stability. So let's say that you just were saving up money, you were leaving it in a bank account. Very, very safe. That money's going to stay there. It's not going to decrease in value apart from inflation, of course, which you've got to think about. But the trade-off is that you're not going to get any growth in that. You might have it on an on-call account, but that interest rate might be 0.3 of a percent or something infinitesimally small at that time that you're not getting a lot of growth there. Sometimes you just come up with some great words of the day. Infinitesimal. Hey, no, no one uses that word. That You know, I suppose the other side of the coin is investing in Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency. Would you now, do that? God, no. Very, very <laughs> high growth. Very, very low stability. Now, I've got a story about this for you because I'm now at the age where I'm too old to understand any of this Bitcoin stuff. A guy came around to my house at the weekend. He's a friend of a friend. And he was telling me about how he's just quit his job on Friday to invest in Bitcoin full time. And I said, oh, you're pretty good at it. He goes, oh, no, not really. And I said, well, just give me an idea of your kind of returns. And so he looked into his thing and he, he started the week with 18,000, now has 85. And I was like... I'd consider that pretty good. So he's told me what to invest in. 
Amazing. Well, that's probably why, actually, we just had an event debating crypto versus property as part of Juno Investing Magazine. And I was amazed how many people were there to talk about crypto and were so into it. And it probably showed me how much of a noob I actually am. Now, the reason, though, that I would steer away from something like crypto, if you're looking to save up a deposit, is the fact that it is so unstable. So you've got massive gains, but also potential massive losses. And if you've saved up 50 grand and it halves in value overnight, you're really going to feel that if you got that as a gain from investing, well, then it was paper money anyway. But if you've saved that money for the intention of investing in another investment property, then you'd really feel like, oh God, I really lost that money. And you've been unable potentially in the short term to be able to make that back and then make the investment that you actually wanted to have that money for. And actually that was felt pretty hard by first-time buyers who, after COVID, had had their KiwiSavers, which they were relying on for their deposits, half, say. And so they had these massive losses. Because of their age, they were in pretty aggressive funds, which meant they were a lot more volatile than, say, a a balanced fund or, or a conservative fund. So, of course, they were in the right product for their age and stage, but because of the fact that we had COVID and they were going to withdraw that money in the short term rather than when they were 65, it maybe wasn't the appropriate product and all of a sudden they had to put off buying their first house. So it certainly does depend as well how many years you are away. But I mean, just to talk about, for instance, the NZX50 as an index, it is up 12.7% over the last 12 months. So if you had that 10 grand or 20 grand that you've been saving up for your next investment property sitting there, you might have made an extra two or three grand that you'd then be able to, you know, if it was 20 grand in that case, to be able to put towards that deposit. So it can help you get there much faster. But of course, it does depend on that market going the right way for you. So I do have some numbers about different things you could do with that money, but let's go through them in detail. Andrew, what's kind of number one on our list? So number one, leave it in the bank. So the benefit, highly stable, you know, often the savings rate we refer to as the non-risk rate of return. It's available for emergency, but there is no growth. By the time you factor in inflation, your money's worth less tomorrow than it is today. And then after that, you could invest it in a term deposit. So again, this is keeping it within the bank and you might lock it in for 12 months as a term deposit and your interest rate might be one or 2% depending where you're investing it. Now, again, very stable, But the trade-off that you've got to remember is if you're going to lock that 10 or 20k in or 5k, whatever you've saved towards that, then it isn't available anymore. It's not liquid. So you're not able to cash it in should an emergency happen. And this is different. I think there's only one other else on this list where this would be the case, where you're not able to access it. So, I mean, saving is great and definitely something you should be doing if you're tapped out or you're thinking about your next property. But certainly, perhaps you still want access to that in case of emergency, if you crash your car and you're uninsured or something along those lines, to still have what happened to me. And and you want access to that. Now, what's next on our list, Andrew? Next is KiwiSaver. Remember, this isn't available for investment property. So whilst it can be a great product for saving for your first house because it's locked in, you can't be tempted into taking that money out and using it for the repairs on your car. You can't use it for an investment property. So if your deposit is being saved for an investment property, Don't do that. The other thing is, if your employer is paying 3% and you're already paying your 3% in, then you're already getting the government contribution. So there's no additional benefit other than the extra return. So you might just want to go into a managed fund that you can actually have some control over. 
The next is managed funds, which is, again, a little bit less stable, but only marginally, depending on which sort of fund you're going into, but will be high growth in the likes of a term deposit. And there are kind of newer versions, kind of sharesies for managed funds, like Colonel Wealth, which I know are out there and in the New Zealand market. So are able for you to invest in. This is probably where I'm personally leading because I want that mixture of some growth, but really that stability, but also wanting to put it into a different account so that I'm less likely to touch it. Now, Andrew, talk to us about the next one. This is what most people would probably do, but I want you to walk through the numbers on this. So the last one's paying down your mortgage. The benefit is this is very stable. And the reason it's stable is because you're probably on a fixed interest rate. So you can kind of guarantee what your returns are because those are locked in. The challenge with a fixed rate is that you have to reapply to get that money back out. So you'd probably have to convert your mortgage onto a revolving credit or a floating offset product so that you got that benefit. So again, if you put $10,000 or $20,000 onto a floating offset and then put aside the money in a savings, same as paying down your mortgage. So say you're putting $100 in over a year, then you actually only save interest of $60 over that one year period. So the benefit is that those gains aren't taxed because it's actually savings rather than returns. And so it only works out to be a 1.1% return. It's not fantastic. It's not going to change your life. And that's because interest rates are so low right now. The other thing that's interesting specifically about that one, because the return was much lower than I thought it would be. The reason it's only 1.1% is that, remember, only one week of that, $100, has been in there for a year's time. You're putting this in slowly. you know. So part of that investment comes in at week 52 and 51 and week 50. And so they will have only been reducing your interest for two or three weeks over that. So one question, just jumping into this then, Andrew, that I want to ask you is, because this number is based on a 2.25% interest rate, If I had to convert a portion of my mortgage across to that floating rate, which tends to be higher if I was going to be doing it on a revolving credit, wouldn't that almost just cancel out those gains? Yes, it would, but it does feel nice to pay off our mortgage in the meantime, particularly if you don't know when you're going to be buying that next investment property, because like you said before, some of it could be from cash or savings, another part could be equity. So remember you came in the other day and you were pretty excited that one of your properties had gone up a significant amount, and oh great, I'm going to leverage against this. You know, It might happen sooner than you think, so it's a nice safe way of getting a, a somewhat guaranteed return on your money, but in the meantime you're paying down your mortgage and if the rules change and you couldn't go and buy another investment property because the Reserve Bank said no more investors, then at least you've paid down your mortgage in the meantime. So I can still see the mental benefit of it. Now, finally, let's talk about shares. And this is really, really surprising. So I've modelled this on investing into the NZX50 index. And again, same scenarios with the mortgages. What would happen if I invested $100 a week for the past 53 weeks. So I invest it today, I put an extra $100 in in seven days time and it goes on. So that's a total of 53 payments, even though they're 52 weeks in the year. Now, the interesting thing here is that it shows the volatility of shares. So the share market has done really well over a 12 month period. I said before about 12.7%, but it rocketed for the first six months and then it's come back a little bit since then. Now, the thing is, is that if you're investing $100 this week and $100 next week and so on and so forth for those 53 weeks, I've modelled out, well, which weeks made me money and which weeks would have lost me money because I will have invested and then the market's receded or come back a little bit over that period. 
and it actually evens out. Now, it won't always be like this, but it just happened to be over the last 12 months, and I thought the numbers would be much more convincing than they actually are. So that first $100 I would have invested into the market would have made me about a 12% return over that time. Same with the second week, about a 12.5% return. But then it starts to decline because we had that negative market movement, because we saw the market increase and then come back. And in fact, in week 35, that $100 that I invested in the market, that would have been at the peak. I would have lost $9 on that specific week, that specific $100 I would have invested. Now, when you average it out, the gain from investing in shares, so investing $100 a week in shares over the last year, you would have been up only 0.7%. That's a total of $36.77 because we've had a bull market, then we've had it come back a little bit. Now, again, the benefit from this is that the gains aren't taxed, but remember, there are often transaction costs when you're investing into the share market. So I guess the key takeaway I want to say there is that if you're investing in something more volatile like shares, even though it feels like we're in a real bull market at the moment, it feels like we've had this recovery from COVID, is sometimes because of that volatility, the gains may not be as big as you might otherwise think. Certainly before I ran these numbers, I thought, oh, this is going to be great. The numbers are going to be that you've made 10% over that 12-month period. And you did for the first six months, but certainly over the last six months of investing, you would have lost money. In this specific case, it'll be different next year because the market movements will be different. The thing also to remember is that if you're saving a cash deposit for a property, the problem is you've got to be able to keep up not only with you know your returns, but then also the growth of the market itself. So if the market's going up at an exponential rate and you're trying desperately to keep up to it, sometimes it is better to do something like borrow some equity from someone else just to kind of get into the market and you know, do what I did, add some value, particularly in those harder earlier years, and then repeat the process using your increase in equity. And that's probably why most of the time nowadays, I try and just leverage against and buy another investment property and hold it rather than save. And savings, a lot of my savings goes into investing in businesses or other investment. Definitely. I think in my case, because I'm a bit earlier in my life, and investment journey. Easy. Yeah, I had to get that <laughs> dig in there. Is that I'm looking at this and saying, look, if I want to go ahead faster, then making some amount of savings is going to be much more beneficial than not doing that and kind of making that decision on that basis. And so that's why I'm kind of putting this plan in place. I've already decided what my next two are going to be, but what about the one after that? And it's probably going to come through some combination of savings, investing with somebody else, borrowing some equity, capital growth and debt repayments. And if I've got maybe four or five things working for me or irons in the fire for being able to get into the next one, that's going to be more beneficial than you know not having as many irons in the fire. Hey, look, let's wrap it up there. But please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help us get the message out to more people. And hey, remember, we are having those dinners in Christchurch, Auckland, Queenstown, Wellington. We're about to do that, Troy. Here's how you get into it. First of all, leave us a review on the podcast. We always appreciate those. Anybody who listens on Spotify, we know you, you don't have that functionality, so that's okay. Follow us on Instagram. We are at opas underscore partners. And don't forget to share something to your story or your feed. I would really appreciate that. Screenshot, send it all to podcast at opaspartners.co.nz. And don't forget to tell us what city you're in so we know which talk to put you in. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ed McKnight. And I'm Andrew Nichols. And we're going to be back again tomorrow with even more daily strategies, tactics and insights to help you get the most out of the New Zealand property market. Until next time.